Well, let me invite you now to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. And I'd like for us to read the first uh, 11 verses as we focus on the resurrection of our Lord together this morning. Acts chapter 1, and I'll start reading in verse 1. And as I read, I want to remind you that I'm reading the inspired Word of God, so please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and that would be the the Gospel of Luke, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, this morning I'd like for us to uh, focus on why we should believe in in Christ's bodily resurrection. Uh, Obviously, not everyone does. Only those who are part of Christ's church actually do in sincerity of faith. But why should we believe in Christ's resurrection? Well, some of the uh, things I'd like to do as we contemplate uh, this thought today is to uh, show you some examples of a first century tomb that has a rolling stone very similar to what Jesus Christ was buried in. Now, this picture comes from uh, Dr. Carl Rasmussen, whom some of us had the privilege of uh, going to Israel in 2008. And uh, he led us on a tour throughout the the country. And he says in his opinion that this is the best example of a tomb similar to the one which our Lord was was actually buried in. You can see the stone that's out in front. And it's actually, the, the stone is actually rolling within two walls. And he says that uh, the stone is six feet in diameter and it's a foot 1.3 1.3 feet thick. So how, how much do you think this thing would weigh? A lot. 
and normally to roll it down in front of the opening into the tomb, it was on an incline or decline coming down to the point of right in front of the tomb. So to roll it away, you would normally kind of have to roll it up, which would make it all the more difficult uh, to remove it. But this thing must have weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds as as large as it is. Uh, This particular... A tomb was located, I think, about 19 miles from uh, Jerusalem. And this is uh, where it's actually located, dropped down a little bit under uh, other rocks. And when we were there, we actually uh, found another similar tomb right outside the old city of Jerusalem as we were walking around. And this one, again, has a rolling stone. Again, you can see the rolling stone is embedded within two walls. And there's also someone has consequently put a wooden door over the tomb uh, entrance. But this is the kind of tomb that Jesus would have been uh, laid in uh, at the end of Friday. We're now Sunday morning. Christ arose around sometime before sunrise this morning on Sunday. And uh, so we have to give an explanation of why the empty tomb. And I think one of the reasons why we need to believe in Christ's resurrection is because all the other explanations about the empty tomb that the women found early around sunrise on Sunday morning, all the other explanations fail. Just to give you kind of an overview of some of the popular theories of skeptics, uh, some of them will say to give an explanation for the empty tomb that, that Joseph of Arimathea must have moved the body at some point. He's the one who uh, gave the tomb for Jesus to be buried in and apparently at some point in time he thought about moving the body to a different tomb. That was a brand new tomb. He had it cut out for himself. And the theory goes that he moved the body of Jesus. That's why the tomb was empty. The problems with this are legion, obviously. Uh, the women arrived around sunrise, right before the sun rose on, on uh, Sunday morning, which means that Joseph must have moved it sometime between Saturday evening and sunrise, so during the middle of the night. So he'd had to be there with torches and everything. Why did he move it in the middle of the night? Why didn't he do it during the daytime when it would have been easier? He had to have done it that evening sometime. The guard was placed there sometime on Saturday. So he had to come and move it probably. I mean, obviously, it must have more than likely took place during the night sometime. And if he did move it, how did he get past the guard? If it was a Roman guard, he would have had to receive permission from Pilate. So they all would have known about him moving the body. If it was a Jewish guard, as some believe, then Caiaphas the high priest would have had to give permission. So they would have all known about it. So when the women went to the empty tomb, and then they came back saying that the tomb is empty, well then eventually they all would have said, no, the body is in this tomb. We moved it. Here's the tomb. So there's just no way to explain in any way that Joseph would have moved the tomb. Everyone, Joseph would have known where he moved the body. And being basically an honest man, as the evidence seems to indicate he was, he wouldn't have lied about it. So it could have been easily identified where the other tomb was, and yet there is no other tomb. The body was never found that way. Uh, No one knew about it. 
So again, the idea that Joseph of Arimathea might have moved the body is extremely unlikely. Another theory, of course, is that the disciples stole the body. That's what ultimately the chief priest tried to pass off as what happened. But again, the problem, how did they get past the guards who were, who were there? They had sealed the stone. I believe it was a Roman, Roman guards. They had put their seal on it. They were guarding it. And you can't just come and take the body without fighting your way through the guards. And the guards were there to protect the tomb. If that body got taken away, they would forfeit their lives. Okay? So how did the disciples get past the guards? These are trained soldiers. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're not in any way able to fight off the Roman guard. So how, what did, they, how did they get past the guard? If they fell asleep, as some might have claimed, then basically they would forfeit their lives. And of course, Caiaphas promised that he would try to get them out of trouble with Pilate. But that's the lie that was circulating out there. Why would the disciples steal the body anyway? Why would they make up a story like that? Why would they promote a story that they knew was a total lie? These are basically men of good moral character as well. Why would they facilitate and invent a lie and be willing to die for that lie. All of the disciples, except for John, church history tells us, died as martyrs for the faith, some brutal deaths. Why would they make up a lie when they stole the body and made up a lie that Jesus rose from the dead and then to a man they were willing to suffer tremendous persecution and torture and even crucifixion in Peter's case. And to the man, they never recounted it through all of their lives. It just doesn't make sense that you would do that. What's in it for them? Why tell the lie? Why make it up? Why propagate it when you know it's totally farce? It just doesn't make sense. Well, how about the fact that the women went to the wrong tomb? This is another one of the explanations of the empty tomb. They just made a mistake. They went to the wrong tomb. They were there, they saw where he was buried, but in the darkness, they ended up taking the wrong turn and they ended up going to the wrong tomb. Well, again, the tomb was well known. Joseph knew where he put the body. He could have easily identified later on, no ladies, you just went to the wrong tomb. Remember, it was here. I own that tomb. I know exactly where. Here, I'll take you to where the tomb is. That never happened. The guard knew the tomb was there. They were there to protect it. Once they started hearing the stories of, well, there's a resurrection, there's an empty body, they could have easily reported to anybody and everybody that, no, here's the tomb. We guard it all the time. The body's still inside. But that never happened. So again, the fact that they went to the wrong tomb doesn't make sense because the right tomb could have easily been identified and revealed later. And then the fourth explanation for the empty tomb was that Christ, again, as we talked about a little bit Friday night in our Good Friday message, He didn't really die on the cross anyway. He just swooned. He survived the cross, but then we're expected to believe that somehow in the middle of the night He arose and walked on those feet that had had the nails hammered through, walked on those feet, which would have been impossible. 
walk over to the stone and with the strength of one man, greatly diminished in energy, roll away that stone up the incline, walk past the guard without being noticed. And by the way, rolling that stone away with with hands that have had nails which have been punctured through the wrists. You think he's going to be able to push on a stone? (laughs) And then appear to his disciples as if he's the epitome of perfect health. Just doesn't make sense. So none of the uh, other explanations of an empty tomb seem to be valid. That stone to be moved must require several men to do it. Uh, If Christ had survived the tomb, or the cross rather, and revived within the tomb and somehow managed to come out, and on today's uh, medical level, he would be instantly rushed to an ICU for months. He would be a cripple for life. He'd never be able to walk on those feet again because of the damage done. He would not be the supreme example of one who had been resurrected and triumphed over death. It just does not make any sense. So what we've read in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, is that Jesus presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs. Now what are those convincing proofs? Well, we're told in verse 3, by appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So basically, the many convincing proofs are all of the resurrection appearances that Jesus gave to His disciples and others after His resurrection. Those were the convincing proofs. Now the Bible actually records 12 of them. 11 during the 40 days and then one final one with, the, uh, with Paul on his way to uh, Damascus. And I thought it would be helpful since this is, this is uh, set forth as convincing proofs of the resurrection. Why we should believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If all the other explanations of the empty tomb fail, then let's look at the convincing proofs that He did uh, arise from the dead. And uh, you've got to understand that these eyewitness accounts that we're going to briefly walk through together uh, appeared on many different occasions. Jesus appeared to them indoors and outdoors. He appeared to them on, on a mountaintop in Galilee. He appeared to them in a, on a suburban road outside of Jerusalem. He appeared during the day to them. He appeared during the night. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to small groups. And He appeared to one group as many as 500. Many different appearances of Jesus Christ. The scope and the variety are amazing. So in other words, these appearances are not like seeing the image of the Virgin Mary in a bark of, on a tree. I think there's some place in Oklahoma that has a shrine. They saw the Virgin Mary on the bark of a tree. Or someone else, I saw this online, that they saw the Virgin Mary in a bathroom shower tile. So now that, that's some kind of a sacred place in there. When you, 
this is not like those types of uh, so-called visions which require a lot of imagination. No, these are bodily, personal appearances of the risen Lord with people who are eyewitnesses of it. These are amazing appearances. This is not a fleeting glimpse out of the corner of your eye. Oh, I think it must have been Jesus. I think I saw something. Or like a, a shadowy figure that's there for a moment and then quickly disappears. No, these are personal bodily appearances. So let's quickly walk through them. I think they're, they're quite amazing and should encourage our faith and our own belief in the resurrection by just, by just quickly reviewing these. The first one that Jesus uh, appeared to was Mary Magdalene. We read it in John chapter 20. And uh, Mary has gone there to the tomb, of course, to prepare the body with further spices. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to them. So the first, very first resurrection appearance was to Mary Magdalene. Now in Mark chapter 16 verse 9, which um, many scholars don't believe was actually a part of the gospel of Mark, nevertheless says what is probably factually true, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene from whom he cast out seven demons. So Mary got the first glimpse. She got the first look kind of a, an initial preview of coming attractions of the appearances of our Lord. Why Mary? I've often wondered that. Why Mary? Well, maybe because no one loved Jesus more than Mary. Possibly. Mary had uh, come in love and devotion to Jesus to uh, add further spices and perfumes to His body. And she had every reason to love the Lord because she had been rescued from seven filthy, disgusting, unclean, evil, demonic spirits. She had been a slave to them. She had been terrorized by them. She was in bondage to them to do God only knows what. And her life was a total miserable wreck sunk in sin, deep in sin. And yet Jesus in His great love and compassion came and set her free. And this woman, Mary Magdalene, was forgiven much. And she loved much. And I think it's just fitting that the Lord appears to her. Of all the disciples... No one was delivered from a deeper hellhole than Mary Magdalene. And I think He shows her the tender love and mercy by revealing His, his glory to her first. Well, after that, the next appearance is to other women. Now, this would include uh, the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, uh, Joanna, Salome, there are other women that were there. These are the ones listed in uh, Matthew 27, verse 56. 
And notice what it says, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. So this is still early on, on Easter morning, Sunday morning. The Lord has already appeared to Mary. These are probably older women. That's why Mary ran ahead first and told the disciples and, and then came back. And so somewhere after then, the Lord appeared to these women and manifested Himself to them. And they also uh, responded by clinging and taking hold of His feet, those nail-pierced feet. They fell down before Him in adoration and embraced Him and worshipped Him. Now I think this is uh, the first two resurrection appearances to women are a strong proof that this is not a fabricated myth or legend created years later to convince the masses. Because in this day and age of the first century, in the Jewish community, you would never put your first two testimonies of the resurrection of Christ as women. You would not do that in the first century because in the Jewish society, women were on a very low rung in the ladder of of society. Women were not even allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law. So here you're going to make up a myth later on of the resurrection of Christ. No one would begin the appearances with women. That would have embarrassed their, their, their myth. That would have made it unbelievable. That would have discounted it. It would have undermined it to actually put women as your first testimonies of the resurrection of, of Christ. It would have discredited it. It would have been embarrassing. But if you were creating a story years later, you certainly would put men first. Because that would be more respectable. That would be more acceptable. Particularly in a court of law. So in reality, the women as the first witnesses to the resurrection actually authenticates the story as genuine. For it would certainly have been a cover-up if at all a legend created later, uh, if you tried to put, you know, to, to think of putting women there to, to begin with. The fact that they were there as the first witnesses actually lends credibility because it must have happened that way because if you invented it, you wouldn't write it out as happening that way at all. Um, again, no one wanting to create a myth would write it out this way. So it only makes sense that the two women, Mary first and then the group of women, actually were the first to see the risen Lord because in fact that's actually how it happened. And the Gospel writers are faithfully recording what happened exactly in the order of which it happened. That's the only way this seems to make sense. Now why women again? Well, Mary we can understand. What about the other women? I think in any way you examine this, women, you are special. (laughs) I think in the Lord's mind, women are special. And so the first two resurrection appearances are given to you. And I think in part what the Lord is doing is He is preparing the way for the new covenant and and the, the blessings of the new covenant that elevate women to be equal with men in Christ. 
This is not the way it was in Jewish society. But I think what the Lord is doing is He's preparing the way for women to be elevated as being equal heirs of the grace of God in Christ Jesus with men. Now, women still have different roles in the family, in the church. But they are equal in Christ. And I think in in preparing that marvelous truth that Paul will speak about in Galatians 3 and other places, that uh, the Lord puts the women first in seeing His resurrection appearance. It's something to think about. Well, the third appearance, okay, here come the men. We got Peter. Luke chapter 24, verse 34. This is actually the, the, uh, the testimony of the two disciples who, who saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And after they see Jesus, they come back to Jerusalem late at night. They go to where the disciples are. And they go in and they report to them, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. So they have understood already that Peter has seen the Lord Jesus. Uh, this is, this is uh, again, late Sunday night when they come back and give this report. So earlier, the Lord had, rep- had appeared to Peter, or Simon as he's called here. And, uh, and they, are, they are recording that reporting that. And uh, so they're, they're verifying that what Peter had told them earlier when he saw Jesus was true because now they've seen Jesus. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 also reflects the same truth when he says he appeared to Cephas. So apparently the Lord uh, appeared to uh, Peter before he's going to appear to the group of the apostles uh, for the first time later on Sunday uh, evening. Okay, the fourth appearance is again the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We pick it up in Luke 24, verse 15. Well, they were, now remember, uh, they're on their way to Emmaus. Christ joins them. They're walking miles. I think Emmaus was around uh, seven miles from Jerusalem. They're walking that way. The Lord is walking with them probably for miles. They're carrying on this conversation about what had happened in Jerusalem. Christ has disguised Himself. They don't recognize Him. So they're carrying on this, dis, uh, this uh, discussion. Eventually, uh, the Lord begins to uh, reveal uh, the truth about the Messiah from Moses and the prophets. And then later, he, he reveals Himself to them when they're eating in a home later that uh, evening. So it says in Luke 24, verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, this is at the meal later on when they get to Emmaus, Jesus Himself approached, I'm sorry, this is earlier on, He approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing. Now drop down to verse 30, Luke 24, verse 30. And when He had reclined at the table with them, He took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, He began giving it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized Him, and He vanished from their sight. So that's when suddenly now in excitement that they've seen the risen Lord, they understand now what's happened. They rush back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. So that's number four. Number five are those disciples. So these two disciples have now come back to Jerusalem. They found the, the ten disciples together without Thomas. Thomas is not there. We pick it up in John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, 
Jesus rose early that morning. And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when He had said this, He showed them both His hands and His side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And then John also adds in John chapter 20, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And then when He later shows up, He says, unless I see in His hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, put my hand in His side, I will not believe. So here we find that the Lord for the first time actually is appearing to the disciples as a group without Thomas. Now basically at this point, the disciples weren't buying it, the resurrection. Mary had told them that He he had been raised from the dead. Uh, The women had told them. Peter had told them. But the rest of them, they were not buying it. They were still doubting, we're told. When these two disciples show up, again, and report that Jesus is alive, again, they're struggling with buying it. And uh, later on, after He appears to them in that room where they're at, Luke 24 will add that while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, now He's with them, now they see Him, now they, they believe it, but they're still amazed. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now, this is very important because what the Lord is showing to them by asking for food and eating it, He is proving to them that the body in the tomb is now the same body in the room. He shows them the nail prints in His hands, in His feet. It's the same body that was on the cross. The same body in the tomb is now the body in the room. And He shows it by taking food with those, with those nail-pierced hands and eating it right in front of them. They see Him. They're at close range. There's no doubt He's alive. It's the same One who died on the cross and was buried in the tomb. An amazing uh, proof that the Lord is giving them by even eating the body. Not like, as I've said in the past, it's not like it's an x-ray where you see through Jesus. You know, He's just kind of a phantom, so He eats the food and you can actually see the food going down His trachea into His stomach because He's just he's kind of a phantom. No, He's a real body. I mean, they see Him in His mouth. He's chewing it. He's swallowing it. I mean, He has a body you can feel. It's a physical body. It's the same body that died on the cross. So that's number five. Number six is now with Thomas. This is one week later. This is on Sunday again. That's one of the reasons why they began to worship on Sunday because that's the day Christ met with His people on Sunday. So now this is one week later, but it's on another Sunday, first day of the week. John 20, verse 26. After eight days, and the way the Jews count days, this would put us on another Sunday After eight days, His disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Same greeting as before. He just appeared. That resurrection body has properties and powers uh, we don't understand. He appeared, uh, even though the door had been shut. Verse 27, Then He said to Thomas, 
reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. This is one of the Christianity's greatest confessions of faith about Christ. My Lord and my God. And this is on par with Peter's great confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thomas now realizes that in his presence is standing the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in body, in living physical flesh. And he has touched his body. And he is so overwhelmed, he now, the Father gives him this insight as to who this is standing in front of him. And he says, you're my Lord, my God. And this is the response of everybody who should come to realize the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We should refer to him now as my my Savior, my Lord and my God. And Thomas realizes that and in great joy he gives us one of these incredible uh, professions of faith. Last number six. Number seven is the seven disciples at the Sea of Galilee. We read of this in John chapter 21. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Remember, they had been out fishing all night and they hadn't caught anything. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered, No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. They recognize he's on the, he's on the beach. It's, it's the Lord, Peter. It's Jesus. And Peter, as we remember later on in John 21, wraps himself up, and he does probably just a perfect swan dive into the water, and he's swimming like a wild man to get to Jesus. Now remember, he had denied Jesus three times. He had denied Him three times. And yet he had received forgiveness from the Lord. But he wanted to be near Christ. And so he dove in the water, swam up to the Lord. There's a Breakfast being cooked over charcoal fire. Does that ring a bell? Charcoal fire? Remember Thursday night, Peter's in Caiaphas' courtyard, and he goes over and he's warming himself over a charcoal fire. And one of the little girls asks him, Oh, you're one of his followers too. And he denied it, warming himself at a charcoal fire. I think that charcoal fire on the beach of the Sea of Galilee is intentional. I think it's setting the the situation for the Lord to do something wonderful with Peter. And I think as Peter draws near, he sees that charcoal fire and probably in his, his mind he's thinking, oh, what horrible memories that charcoal fire. What shame when I denied my Lord three times. And then the Lord went to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me three times? As if to reverse the curse that he was bearing of his denial. Do you love me, Peter? And three times Peter affirmed it. And what the Lord was doing there, 
as he instructed him to tend my feet, my sheep, uh, shepherd my lambs, tend my lambs, was to reinstall Peter back into the ministry, back into the place of reaching out and carrying on the work of the gospel. I think that was a time of restoring Peter back into that ministry that he had so shamefully uh, denied earlier. So that's the glorious seventh appearance of the Lord. Number eight is at the eleven or at the mountain in Galilee. We read of this in Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus has designated. And this is the great commission appearance of the Lord, as most believe. We read of it when Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So again, what the Lord is doing in this appearance, He had told them to go north into Galilee, that He would meet them there. They went north in obedience. He met them there. And this is where He gives them the great, uh, the great commission uh, that uh, is such a, a powerful thing for the church to carry on and be involved in. The ninth appearance is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So in this appearance, he does it to a large group. And this is over 500. And Paul is making the observation that many of those people, hey, if you don't think this really happened, many of these people, hundreds of them are still alive. Go ask them if they saw the risen Lord Jesus. So they're there to give additional testimony. And all of this, I think, is very convincing that these resurrection appearances were not hallucinations because hallucinations are individual occurrences. They exist in the realm of the subjective personal experience. You don't have a bunch of people experiencing uh, the exact same hallucination because that's occurring within your brain. And the very same thing won't likely occur in a bunch of brains all at the same time. So this is not a hallucination. The early accounts of the appearances from, from Mary cannot be hallucinations because one of the things you need for a hallucination is a fertile mind with a great strong sense of expectancy or anticipation of what you're later going to hallucinate about. Well, this exactly did not happen with any of them who saw the risen Lord. They, at least the early ones, particularly Mary and the disciples, they were not expecting the Lord to rise from the dead, even though He told them many times He would. They were, they were cast down. They were bewildered. They were gloomy. They were depressed. They weren't anticipating seeing the risen Lord when they saw Him. So that goes absolutely contrary to how hallucinations work. You've got to have that, that great expectancy or anticipation to, to add fuel to your hallucination. And that was certainly not the case here. It's the last thing the women or the disciples were expecting. Because they were doubters and skeptics. They were certainly not good candidates for, a, for a, a hallucinations. Besides that, hallucinations are rare. Uh, they're not a momentary... What, what we have with Jesus is not a momentary vision 
For He walked with them, He touched them, He ate with them, He spent time with them. This is not just a momentary hallucination that they experienced. So 500 at one time saw the Lord. The next one is James. This is not the Apostle James. This is Jesus' half-brother. He was certainly a former unbeliever. Look at how the Scripture described James at this point in his life. In Mark 3, when his own people heard of this, of Jesus out doing ministry, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. That's what James thought of Jesus in his early ministry. John 7 says his brothers were not believing in him. James was not believing that his brother was the Messiah. In Mark 6, Jesus even said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. That would include his, his brothers. So a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. So it's a, another testimony that his brothers certainly were not believing in him. And yet we find this amazing, incredible transformation in James after he saw the risen Lord so that James actually became the leader of the church at Jerusalem. What a transformation that this man uh, went through. Number 11, we have the disciples at the ascension of Jesus. This is the passage that we've read in Acts chapter 1. We also read of it in Luke chapter 24. Luke was so fascinated by this, he included it both in his gospel and also in the book of Acts. Back in Luke 24, it said, And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I always love this because the last thing they saw of Jesus was standing next to them with his, with his hands outstretched and blessing them. And then his body just starts to rise up into heaven and gets absorbed into a cloud. And the last thing they see is Jesus with His hands stretched out blessing His people until His voice just fainted away and His body disappeared in the cloud. Can you, can you imagine having that as your final vision of the Lord just in love and mercy His hands are outstretched blessing you. And that's the vision, the final vision they had of the Lord. What an incredible, powerful thing. And then finally, of course, all of that occurred within the 40 days that Jesus talked about. And later on, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Jesus appeared to Saul, who will later become the Apostle Paul, on his way to Damascus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul says, at last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now again, what's so amazing about this is just the incredible transformation that took place in this man's life. What changed him? What changed him from persecuting Christ's followers to proclaiming Christ as Lord and Savior? Especially when you think of his background. Paul's own testimony of his former lifestyle was that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. 
In Galatians, he said, For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I mean, this is who this man was. He was like a, a religious bounty hunter, ruthless, full of hate. He admitted to locking up Christians in prison, casting his votes against them. He did that with Stephen. He held their clothes as they were stoning him to death. He was hell-bent on raiding every Christian home or meeting he could find to arrest the Christians, drag them back to the chief priest, and hopefully have them put to death. He was so intoxicated with his own rage against Christianity that he volunteered to go to Damascus and hunt down every Christian he could find. Damascus was about 200 miles away. It would have required five or six days of solid walking to get there. That's okay, Paul. I'll volunteer. That's how driven he was. That's how much hate there was in his heart. He would go and arrest the heretics drag them back to Jerusalem, punish them and put them to death. And yet this man met his Waterloo on the road outside of Damascus and he was changed in a moment of time. All of those deeply inbred biases and religious hostility towards Christians was blown away like chaff by the wind. And suddenly new aspirations and new beliefs suddenly filled his heart totally opposite of what he had held before. And he was never shaken throughout the rest of his life in his conviction in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what transformed all these people so that they would go through all of their life enduring hardship and suffering and ridicule and persecution and beatings and imprisonment and death? What would motivate them to do that? And none of them recanted None of them later on in their life said, this isn't worth it. We were lying about what we told you about Jesus rising from the dead. None of them did that. What transformed them? Well, it's because they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That He was in fact alive and now exalted to the Father's right hand And He's the only Savior for sinners. And the world needs to hear it. That's what motivated them. That's what changed them. Well, in wrapping up, what's the significance then of Christ's resurrection for us today? Well, you can go on and on. I'm just going to skirt through some of this. But this is a wonderful study in and of itself. But because Christ rose bodily from the dead... He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to God but through Him. There's no other way to be forgiven but through Christ. There's no other way to be saved but through Jesus Christ. And if you're listening to this message this morning and you've never come to put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is no one else who can save you. Because the Savior must be able to bear our sin and suffer in our place and fully satisfy the wrath of God and prove that He did it by conquering death by being by rising from the dead. And there's only one man in all of human history that has done that, and that's Jesus Christ. And we would invite you, we would encourage you to humbly acknowledge your sin and come to Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Believe upon Him 
Because He's promised that He will give the free gift of everlasting life. Salvation is not based upon you being good. You're a sinner. We're all sinners and deserve the judgment of God. But salvation is a free gift that only Jesus Christ can come. Come to Him. He says, come to Me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Because Christ rose from the dead, our preaching, our faith is not in vain. We are not in our sins, hallelujah, because Christ conquered our sins. He triumphed over them when He rose from the dead. He was raised for our justification. But one of the greatest things, I want to close with this, is just the idea that because Christ was raised from the dead, we too have the hope of glory to come, the hope of the resurrection yet to come. Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, being raised from the dead in glory. And He will be followed by a great multitude of His brethren. So that the resurrection of Christ gives us a living hope that should have a powerful impact upon our life uh, today. In 1 Peter 1, one of my all-time most favorite passages of Scripture we read of this hope of glory, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of our inheritance that we have because Christ rose from the dead. And let me just read this for you. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There it is. We have a living hope. What's it based on? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a hope today because Christ rose from the dead. Well, what is is our hope? Well, He gives that to us in verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's the final phase of our salvation. That great inheritance. That is our hope of one day enjoying the fullness of the inheritance. That is our living hope that is rooted in Christ's resurrection. Because He arose from the dead, He guarantees that we will arise from the dead and inherit that inheritance ourselves. Later on, Peter will actually go on and emphasize this when he says, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. The grace brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When He comes back, when we enter into our great inheritance reserved in heaven for us, that salvation to be revealed when He comes back. Now that's a glorious hope, but how should that hope affect us on a day-to-day basis. Well, what we find out is it should fill us with great joy. Look at what Peter goes on to say in verse 6. He says, "...in this that is in your inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. In this great inheritance, you greatly rejoice." And even though now for a little while if necessary you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And though you have not seen Him, and we have not, we have not seen the risen Lord like all those other people did. The Lord is now permanently at the Father's right hand. He doesn't come down and make appearances anymore. But even though we have not seen Him, we love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, notice what He says again for the second time, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. This is one of the amazing things that the hope gives to every believer, which it should, and that is this great rejoicing. Do we do that? Do we find in our soul a great rejoicing when I think of my living hope, my joyful hope of the inheritance that Christ has won for us? Have I entered experientially into that great joy? Well, I must admit, I don't to the degree that I should. And that's why I love this passage. See, the hope that we have because Christ rose from the dead, we too one day will join Him in glory. We too will be raised from the dead. And that should give us joy now. And you say, well, look at all the problems we have. It's hard to be joyful. Well, look at the problems they had. Look at what He says to them. He had said to them uh, up in verse 6, that even though now distressed by various trials, they greatly rejoice in their inheritance to come. See, they had their trials. We have our trials. But even in the midst of their varied trials, all kinds of trials, health trials, financial trials, emotional trials, you name it, they had that great joy because they were looking to the inheritance. And I've become convinced uh, to my own uh, shame that the early church had a much stronger, vibrant focus on their hope, more so than many Christians today do. We are so absorbed in the things of this life. We're so earthbound that we don't enter into the joy that we should have because of Christ's resurrection and the future resurrection and inheritance that He has already has in heaven waiting for us. I think too often we're like an eagle with a broken wing. We're earthbound. We're stuck here. We're so focused on the problems around us when we should be soaring in the heavenlies because of this living hope which should also be a joyful hope. It's that hope in the future glory that Christ has secured for all of His children because of His resurrection that will torpedo and sink the battleships of our fear, our anxiety, our, our depression. It rips a great big hole in it and causes it to sink to the bottom of the ocean. Thus, it's a joy that triumphs over our own distressing various trials of life. Whether those trials are sheltering in place or the coronavirus or the loss of job, we have a hope and it's a hope that should give us great rejoicing if we see what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means to me personally. Because one day I will enter into the joy of that resurrection and be with Him forever and ever. So what should the resurrection of Christ do? It should give us joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. 
And this hope, this living hope, should be for us the source of great joy as we look forward to our inheritance in heaven. And Christ's resurrection should remind us that our own resurrection is coming soon. And may we find a renewed joy in that. Well, may God bless you this Easter Sunday. And let's close our time together with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we just want to thank You for this opportunity that we can reflect upon just the, the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is a truth that we should celebrate every day and every Sunday, but we thank You, Lord, for this time of year when we can give special emphasis to this uh, foundational truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray as we believe and have this living hope, that You would give us that great rejoicing as we look forward to the future of all that awaits us because our Savior arose from the dead on the third day. And may we celebrate that and worship You for it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.